Welcome to episode 39 of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. Joining me are the classy one, James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Production, and the pun master, Chris Nigro, author and founder of Wild Hunt Press. And I am the Robert Ironsky, creepy weirdo and professional geek. And we are the TVCU crew. The TVCU crew are a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots to official crossovers and Easter eggs in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the Telgen Crossover Universe. This is an intellectual show about trivial things. And Ivan cannot be with us today because he is in the upside down place. <laughs> uh, watch, Listen to our last show. You'll know what I'm talking about. Um, and now, our shameless plugging segment. Da, 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 da. Chris, what do you got to plug for us? Well, just a very quick reminder that very soon now, Sirens Call Publications will be coming out with their one of their latest anthologies, which which is What Dwells Below, and all, all will feature stories from different authors, one of which is moi, that all take place in Asur, and it is a horror anthology. So, yeah, all stories about horrible things happening to people in Asur. Very cool. I don't know this Mr. Moi, but I look forward to his story. Thank you. Chris. Would you like to talk about the book that we talked you into publishing last night? Maybe open submissions to our listeners? Yeah, but if we're talking about the book, basically, where um, we have articles, we publish articles discussing, um, discussing basically what reality is like in what I'm now beginning to call the Wild Hunt universe. Um, think crossover universe, just think my little corner of it, basically, and just think of the very cool articles that Dennis Power used to publish, of all the cool stuff we got on Winscott Eckert's site, um, in terms of articles, just describing things in a para-scholarship way rather than a pro-story way. And I want to get back into that, but I want to get official. And uh, I remember um, Win published an awesome book like that, um, when we still call the crossover universe the Wald Newton universe, it was pretty awesome. And I'd like to do a similar series of um, articles in my little neck of the crossover universe world. Um, basically like my currently online articles, Thor in the Wild Hunt universe, what's he like there? What would Thor be like in a pulp hero universe? What would Hawkman be like in a pulp hero universe if he existed there? What about Hal Jordan, et cetera, et cetera? This will, they will be very much in the grain of the work that Dennis Power did and that Wynn did back in those great early days. And, yeah. So, should people contact you with a description of what they're thinking of doing, and where can they reach you? They can reach me at godofthunder85 at gmail.com. Or they can just friend me on Facebook. All right. So, or they can ask one of you guys to contact me. Whatever works for them. Well, then we have to give our contact information so that they can contact us so that we can then give them your contact information. That, that's that, that's they, a good idea. Let's do that. Let's get, they, let's... they should just friend you on Facebook. 
if that works for them, it's easier for them. Otherwise, they can just contact Rob and ask him to contact James to contact <laughs> me. To yes. get on a not-so-great cell phone connection to the upside-down Ivan to contact Chris. That's right. Just, just leave a message on uh, Ivan's voicemail. And, and, you know, it's, it's funny because um, Ivan pretty much sounded last week during the Stranger Things co- discussion like he was in the upside-down place coming through the phone. <laughs> that that was basically the connection. <laughs> that, was, that was too bad because he had a lot... He had a lot of insights into the show. Yes, I started a campaign to buy him uh, to buy him uh, uh, one of those awesome microphones, one of those speaker systems, so he can just communicate. Because we're losing so much without him. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I miss him. I miss him this week. All right. So, James, how about you for plugs for this week? I would just like to reiterate that After Avalon is now out in print and digital. And then, because I have, like, a full minute to spare, I'm going to read you the description. So buckle down. All right, I'm buckled. King Arthur is dead. Camelot has fallen. Britain drowns in Saxons. These are the stories of what came after. Merlin's prophecies begin such, in introduction. In the days when Arthur's dream was dimmed as gray embers under storm, actors from our reverie still acted. A boy ventures into decaying brocolade with the Mayhawk's daughter, both in search of fathers. Sir Gwain, befrift of his nation, rides in search of my tomb, but finds a friend turned enemy. In the Britain's hour of need, the round table will be restored to defend Logers in the sky during the London Blitz. My tutor, Blaze, will take a fool's horse, and two adventurers will trace my dying steps across the world. Sir Lionel's remains will visit the remains of the Arthurian world, and the Victorians will strive to make a gentleman of Mordred. The questing beast will never cease to haunt Pelinor's life, no matter how far north into Viking Scandinavia they tend. The old witch, Morgan, will seek forgiveness. The Holy Lance will appear once more. And a queen who is no longer a queen will meet a knight who is no longer a knight, and both will marvel at the grave of the greatest king who served his country. These may be read in full inside, but I am tired now. A new Manet calls for me. An all-new anthology from award-winning curator Nicole Petit, featuring stories by Colin Fisher, Lee Ann Cowan, Amy Wolfe, Thomas Alivari, John Black, Patricia S. Bound, Claudia Quint, David Wiley, Christian Bone, Patrick S. Baker, and Elizabeth Zuckerman. And that's all I've got. All right. I want all their autographs. <laughs> you mean a signed copy? <laughs> From all of them, yeah. All right. Um, so this is the last Scaracon plug. Uh, we met a lot of great people at Scaracon, um, which was ages ago now, and I promised everyone I'd plug them. Um, so this is one that Chris might remember, um, Crafty Squirrel Designs. Remember the woman with the squirrel tail and, and such? Oh, she was awesome. She could imitate the sounds of a squirrel in a totally creepy but accurate way. I loved her. So, um, look for Ladro the Squirrel, um, who we cruisies met at Scaracon on Facebook and Twitter. Ladro the Squirrel, L-A-D-R-O. Um, and now I'm done with that. Okay, I have a quick question. Are they a design company that advertises themselves with squirrel costumes, or do they design squirrel costumes? You've got a puppet, a squirrel puppet. She walks around. 
you have you have to look for Ladro the Squirrel on Facebook and Twitter. Come on, and, audience, help me and, find Ladro. And Figure all, it out together. All will be revealed. You remember the puppet, right, um, Rob? That was Ladro. Uh, yeah, I love that puppet. I want to see him again someday. That yeah. So yeah, their their whole their whole um, campaign is around their fictional um, stuffed squirrel puppet um, as a as a real person. <laughs> She's a fan of Squirrel Girl too, by the way. Yeah. Well, of course. <laughs> um, and let's see the other plug: crowdfunding. Give us money. Would you like to be in show business? Guess what? If you give us money, then you're part of show business. <laughs> so give us money. Um, you know, we got we got a GoFundMe if you only want to do a one-time donation. We got a Patreon if you would like to do a regular contribution. Uh, in all seriousness, um, we don't make any money from this podcast, but we do have to pay fees uh, for this podcast, um, which comes out of my pocket. Um, when I say Super Entertainment Presents, I really mean my bank account presents. Um, so, um, you know, uh, it helps, it helps every little bit, you know, even if you can just give a dollar that, you know, you know, a few dollars goes, you know, better than no dollars. Um, and it, it helps, helps us, helps us keep the show going, um, without me having to worry every month about, um, how we're paying for this because, um, you know, we may all be CEOs of publishing companies, but we're really all broke. <laughs> we're we're struggling artists. So um, uh, if you can, please please contribute. But of course, um, uh, we love we love you to just listen, even if you cannot give money, because we love our fans. You know, we've been go we've been doing this for for eight months now, and um, and our numbers keep going up and up. Um, we keep getting more and more fans, more and more people listening, and we love you all. Because um, we'll, I, I, I didn't think we'd get a dozen people listening, and we have like, you know, over a thousand listens a week. So that's pretty awesome. Um, so, anyways, that's it for me. Uh, stay tuned because after the commercial break, uh, we'll be talking with our good friend Matthew Denyon and a new friend Josh Torito. So we'll be right back. All right, we are back. Chris, could you please introduce our guests? I, it would be my pleasure and honor. With <laughs> us today once more is my friend and colleague and very prolific writer, Matt Denyon. Hey, Chris, how you doing? Robert, how are you guys doing? Good, how are you? Good, great to have you here. And with Matt is artist Joshua Torito. Thank you, boys. Appreciate you having me. Great to have you here. And... A collaborative work that Matt and Joshua did that I'd like to start out talking about is a children's book. Yes. A cool children's book, to be totally frank with you guys about it. Well, thank, and, you. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think they got it. Uh, I and, got uh, it. Okay. <laughs> this is joke, Frank. Yeah. Ah. And, yeah, <laughs> and it is very crossover-friendly, too, as we have uh, a very famous... Monster created by a certain medical student uh, who discovered the secrets of life and death into a very mythical land that was created by a man named L. Frank Baum. 
basically Frankenstein goes to Oz. And uh, I read the book. I'm still a fan of children's books to this day because they have a lot of good themes. And basically here we have um, the Frankenstein monster on a quest for friendship. And he attempts to find it in Oz when he's waylaid there by another one of those mystery tornadoes that I think are actually dimensional vortexes masquerading as tornadoes. And when he swept up there, a lot of interesting things happen on the quest. But first, one thing I'd like to ask Matt about, um, this book, um, the idea for this book, rather, was suggested to you by two very special people in your life, correct? <clears throat> yes, the... Um the genesis from the book came, as, as you guys know, we'll talk about later. I do a lot of uh, monster books and horror-type books. And I have a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old daughter who kept telling me, Daddy, you need to write a book that we can read. So um, I had actually done the story uh, back when I was doing my master's program. I work as a teacher. And um, one of our projects was to uh, utilize prior knowledge to introduce something new. So my class had read um, The Wizard of Oz. And an abridged version. They were going to read Frankenstein. And um, I thought, well, this would be a neat thing to do where I can utilize it in my class and then also, um, you know, utilize it for the course I was taking. And uh, it was about maybe 10 years ago I did that and kind of just forgot about it till the kids had mentioned to me, um, hey, we'd really like to, you to do a kid's book. And I thought, well, this was very much like a kid's book because um, the students I teach are, are pretty low functioning. And um, I just thought, all right, well, let's give this a shot. So I immediately thought of uh, Josh here, who uh, does some tremendous, tremendous artwork. Um, Chris, I mean, you saw the book. I thought his artwork was great in the series. Yes. Um, so uh, he was a guy I went to. He was excited about the project as well and um, was really able to put a nice touch to the artwork where he wanted it to feel like it was very um, early 1900s. And um, we definitely didn't want it to appear like, uh, you know, the old um, movie Wizard of Oz. You know, we want it to be more like the book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And I feel like Josh really captured that. And um, he had some tremendous ideas, like, um, about how to set the book up visually. Like, one thing about the book is we never really show the monster uh, straight on. That was Josh's idea, right? I mean, yeah. I thought it was a tremendous idea. <clears throat> we had hoped uh, that this would capture the idea of any child who doesn't have a home or has a hard family life, mm. or any child who just feels a little sad can see themselves in the monster and see themselves as part of the journey. And I, th I think we hit that right on the head. I feel like I mean, it was a challenge to do it and find different reasons and ways to hide the monster. And it took a lot of planning and a lot of talking, but between Matt and I and a lot more time than we had expected, we found a good way to do it, and we were very happy with the end result. I was very um, happy to read the end result there, as it's clear, Joshua, you're quite the fan of L. Frank Baum, and uh, you, really got, you really brought to life in the visuals there the odds that we know from the book. What we, what we didn't get, which I think is a good decision on, on um, Matt's part there, is the Frankenstein monster from the book, because that was a terrifying, vengeful monster. What we got here was the lighter side of the monster you focused on, the one that wanted acceptance and friendship. Yes. I tried to go for more like those old... Um, you guys remember those like monster party cartoons from when we were kids kind of thing? Yeah. Rampant and Chase, yes. Yes. So I wanted to go more for that because we didn't want kids to be um, scared of the book. We wanted that kind of uh, 
Halloween mascot type of Frankenstein where, you know, kids could feel relatable to him and not be afraid of the monster. Um, so we actually tried to make him look a little bit like Elvis even just because we thought it was funny. Yes. <laughs> I thought when, when we designed the monster, if we could give him some very recognizable cartoony uh, features that were still, still very much belong to our monster, the kids would relate to it a lot easier. And I think we hit that on every angle. Is everybody, you know, they, they want to know what this monster looks like, but they can already start putting it together in their head before we move on with another project with this monster. And then it, remind, it reminds me of the original Universal Horror um, Frankenstein where, you know, he goes off and he's trying to make friends. Yeah, yes. And, and I always thought that was very Casper-ish. You know, like Casper was scary to people, but he, he just wanted to make friends. And and the Universal Frankenstein was very similar to that. Like he just wanted to make friends. <laughs> yeah, I, I got the idea actually. I'm glad you mentioned that from um, the Universal Frankenstein, that classic scene where he comes across the girl tossing the flowers in the water. Right. Um, of course, we you know wanted to make this a little more friendly than how that one ends up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, throwing Dorothy into the river wouldn't have been the best option. Right. But um, <clears throat> that's kind of where. We went for that. We're like, the monster is, a, you know, somebody to be pitied and really try to cast him in a light of, um, you know, somebody the kids would feel sorry for as he goes through his journey. Um, although Oz was like a, a really fun place to do that journey in, I feel like, um, because, you know, everybody likes Oz in one version or the other. Um, I actually love the original novels. Tremendous. If you guys have read that, I, I always tell people, like, you got to read the first novel. It's so much better than the, uh, the movie that you're used to. Um, but it still works out well to relate to uh, to kids, especially because it's like a fairy type land, you know, like um, Wonderland or Neverland or that. Right. It's in that type of vein. Right. True. The original, I mean, the 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 books show Oz as so much more than what we see in the the, the classic film. Yeah, so many more characters and dimensions to it, and. Yes, which yeah. we introduced things like the Porcelain City. Um, I had a few people ask me about that, where it's like, well, I don't remember that in the movie. So, well, the Porcelain City, is, it figures a, a much bigger into the book series um, right. than it does into the uh, the movie. Plus, for copyright reasons, we had to make sure that we were separate from the movie. So it was a lot more fun to in, put in some of those things that are specific to the book and don't appear in the movie. And you get a good exploration of the realm of Oz, as L. Frank Baum conceived it, because... The monster basically goes on a journey all through Oz, uh, you know, looking for a place to belong rather than just to go home. Because he, unlike Dorothy, he doesn't have a home. Yes. Yeah, and that's the, the whole premise of the book is he's looking for a home. So he goes from one character to the next, um, you know, the lion, the tin man, the scarecrow, the munchkins, they all appear, um, looking for somewhere that he can stay. And he finds something that he can relate to each of the characters when he gets there, but then for various reasons he's unable to stay with them. So his journey continues. So basically the theme I got going was, you know, basically telling the kids, don't give up. You're going to experience failure from time to time, but don't give up because if you're persistent, you'll get there. Yes, exactly. And it, it seemed to fit well. As I mentioned, I was writing this for my daughters. My oldest daughter, when I, we first started this project, was going into first grade. So she had a little trepidation, as we all do, kind of like, you know, that very first day of true school. We're like, well, you know, these aren't the friends I know from the block necessarily. These are new people. How am I going to fit in? What am I going to do? Um, so I was trying to capture some of her feelings at that time, too, and we kind of went back and redid the book. Well, that's exactly what the Land of Oz and the Monster 
um, do is they're basically metaphorical reflections of the world we know, but in an entertaining fantasy setting that's, like I said, you know, basically cool to explore. That's the entertainment factor. And Oz, uh, the laws of reality are very topsy-turvy, so you get cool places like the Emerald City. Yes. The Porcelain City. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we would hope that this would serve as like a doorway. Um, I've had a few people who've picked up the book and so they go back and they would reread the or read for the first time The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the book, which is what we hope would happen to you that would open up worlds, in particular for young kids to say, like, hey, this is neat. Maybe I want to read this. I don't know if we want them to read Frankenstein right off the bat, but you yeah. know, um, maybe there's plenty of other versions of Frankenstein to introduce young kids to. Um, and it's not the original novel. Um, what? 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 One of the things I was impressed about was with you and Joshua's fidelity to the book. We actually, instead of the ruby slippers, we got the original silver slippers. I'm like, yay! Yes, because in the book, they're silver slippers. So, um, So we made sure we stuck with that as well. And there's a lot of explanation to people who have never read the book why things are the way they are. And I don't even think that came up in a conversation when we were planning that we would have to explain it to people. Right. But, but now they know the ruby slippers are very MGM, not bomb. Yes. <laughs> and well, I, I, I thought it was a great touch. Thank you. You're welcome. And, and Joshua, what were what were some of your what were what were some of your favorite visual ideals from ideas from Oz that you were thinking of when you when you did the illustrations? My my first thought was that Matt had carried over. And I, I, my, my vision of Oz and how the story was going to go was different than Matt's because I read this and I had, not having children myself, saw this a little differently. I saw these kings of Oz as these guys were people who had forgotten that where they come from. Dorothy's gone, so they don't have to listen to her anymore. They've forgotten everything she's taught them, and they're, they're kind of cruel. So when I looked at them, I looked at some other um, older European kingdoms some of uh, some African tribes for the Scarecrow to give these guys different looks for all the different lands so they all had their own feel. But everybody had to have a little bit of something from everybody else. And then when we did that, we were able to connect the journey a little better. And then we thought to ourselves, well, this, this is nice and all, but what, uh, what, what's going to carry him out? And I think what you see with almost all these these kings is they don't almost care. They don't really look at him. They see him, but they almost look right through him. We were able to carry that out in almost every picture. And this is another reason we did this in black and white. And it wasn't so much that we just thought color wouldn't be easy, but we wanted to create a world that we wanted to live in. And we were able to do that with these guys and this black and white and all the gray tones in between. And and so... When you were thinking of your visuals, Joshua, for the for the Frankenstein monster, what, what um other than well the Elvis coif, obviously, what other um iconic imagery? What is your ideal image of the Frankenstein monster when you sit down to draw? If I had to sit down and draw a Frankenstein monster, I would probably stick with Karloff because he was the only Frankenstein that really matters. Yeah, I mean the other guys were fine. But Karloff is the Karloff is the standard. I mean, we couldn't do that, and I didn't want to do anything that someone had done before. I didn't want that for me. I didn't want it for Matt in this series. I wanted something that was completely our own. 
Now, you'll find tidbits of one Frankenstein and everybody else's Frankenstein. But at the end of the day, this was our monster, and this was our world. So we stayed away from everything. I looked at a lot of people's work uh, through the Internet and through books to say, I don't want this, I don't want that, this can't look like that. And I think Matt did the same thing when when we were discussing the planning. We need to be our own men. This needs to be our own world. Stay away from everybody. And then we just take, uh, you know, your little bits of classics here and there. The um, the overcoat he's wearing is, is something you would have seen in medieval times. Ripped up boots, ripped up pants. He's dirty. He's got a slight arch, which any zombie or monster would have. Yeah. yeah you really did a good job of capturing that aspect without making it terrifying, I felt like. Yeah. Then the kids need to know that it's okay to be scared a little. It's okay to have right. fun with that. Right. Like, I, I wanted a Nightmare Before Christmas type of feel to it, um, which Josh captured very well. I felt like where, you know, a kid can see it and see it's kind of a little scary, but not like it's fun scary. It's not like horror scary. And, and that's what's interesting, guys. One thing Joshua pointed out with there, you know, about um, the Universal Monster being the standard. The original monster, as much as I like the original monster and have stuck through it, the original monster from uh, the Shelley novel is not really iconic, really. I mean, the concept of the monster is, but when it comes to visuals, yes, we get Boris Karloff and I would say, to some extent, Glenn Strange. In other words, the universe. Right. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's very interesting. You guys even retained the green skin, I noticed, which was created the problem when you got to Emerald City. Yes, yeah. So, and, yeah, the, the, we knew that was going to happen, and that was fun to play with the idea. Yeah. And, and you, you guys kept things simple. It was a simple and short story. It's a quick read for kids. I like that as well. And, you know, that feeling. And I also must say, I don't want to hit with a spoiler, but I really love the way it ended. And I'm really thinking, I'm, I couldn't help thinking, do Matt and Joshua have the idea for a possible obvious sequel? we do we're still like kind of tossing around how we want to do that next step um but we we definitely have an idea at least i don't want to put the spoiler out there uh but there's most likely going to be a sequel and uh it's going to be another type of journey like this first one was we're exploring different aspects of uh, what he comes across next at the end of the first book it'll be different aspects of what he comes across there so um that's, I think, what we're leaning towards, right? That's what we're hoping for, yeah. So we're doing our homework on that right now, and uh, Josh and I were just talking about uh, different pieces that we want to explore with that. I mean, did you want to throw out there, like, kind of what the rough idea? Like, No, actually, what I'd like to do is invite your listeners to email us and tell us what they think they'd like to see or where they think we're going. Oh, uh, I think that'd be great, guys. And I guess I should ask you, Joshua, if that sequel goes through, and I got my fingers crossed, guys, as I, as I mentioned this, do you have some visuals of that other obvious world um, already in mind? Yes. Yeah, we were talking about that today. Um, like I said, in fact, I think we're going to explore different aspects of that other world because it's different around our world. You know what I'm saying, Chris? So, yeah. um, I mean, listen, can we throw out what the end is? Yeah, go ahead. Well, just for, I don't know, Robert and everybody else has checked it. It ends with Santa Claus coming, or Santa Claus, there you go, Frankenstein finding himself at Santa Claus's workshop. Yeah. So, um uh, Josh and I have tossed around a couple ideas. There's a lot that we can do with Christmas in that um, Christmas is celebrated differently around the world. Uh, Santa Claus is looked at differently around the world and represented differently. So um, we're thinking we might do something with that would be fun uh, going forward. Um, plus, too, 
uh, anything we can do to, uh, because these are geared towards kids, uh, to get them to read more. So if we introduce yeah. different versions of Santa Claus, maybe, um, there's plenty of books that come around at Christmas time with Santa around the world type of thing uh, that we would hope that that would lead kids towards. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Without giving away too much. And I, I think one of the best things that we've done with keeping this book simple is we're staying with the traditions of monsters and this book while it's not necessarily for halloween we're keeping those fantasy ideals alive that are being taken away from the, ho- uh, the holidays which is great for the kids yeah yeah and that leads to another interesting question guys regarding the bomb c- um, um connection i don't know how many people are familiar with this i know you guys certainly are bomb also did a series of santa claus um books and stories and that makes me wonder with all the different dimensional versions of Santa Claus, because he does seem to exist in his own dimensional pocket universe of, uh, of the North Pole, basically. Is this going to be the bomb Santa Claus? Well, you'll just have to wait and see, won't you, Chris? <laughs> I am shaking with anticipation here. And I, I can't wait to see what kind of visuals. There is just so much there that the monster could run into. I could see you guys showing the monster running into the Yeti, a Yeti, the abominable snowman there, and, and basically seeing what they have in common, things like that, finding friends. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of stuff on the table for that right now, so we're not... We have a rough idea, but we haven't really had an opportunity to sit down and hammer it out. It's one of the interesting things. Uh, this is the first time I've done like a truly collaborative piece with somebody, because as, as you guys know, I mainly just kind of write my own stuff. Um, and Josh and I have been friends for a long time prior to doing this project, right? Like, 15, 16 15, years. 16 years. So... Um, it was good to work with him on that, and, and we were pretty much on the same page. Um, but it definitely takes a little bit um, more time, I feel like, in the beginning, right? Because we have to make sure we're both on the same page, yeah. especially with an artist, uh, with a kid's book, because we really need the words to reflect the art in this case. There was a lot of planning. And for people who don't know, everybody's process is different. But when I read Matt's book and we discussed it and how different our ideas were of what was actually happening... I had to come up with five or six different scenes for each uh, each page yeah. to see where Matt really felt he was at. And that was after maybe two months of trying to figure out what we thought the characters would look like. Right. And that was five to ten different character sketches for each character to really find where we needed to be. It's, it's hard. People don't realize when you sit down with two different people with the, the same thing, you can have wildly different ideas of what's, what you think the same thing is. And it's, I think we worked on this for seven, eight months. Yeah, it took a little longer than we thought originally. I didn't think it was going to take more than two months. I really yeah. didn't. And it was a learning experience for the both of us. Well, that, that leads to yet another interesting question. When uh, Matt earlier mentioned, you know, basically the copyright issues that you have to work with, with that would, I mean, well, I guess what my question is, does the copyright issues you have to work around does that give you guys a strong creative boost? Like, for example, if you guys do the Frankenstein monster in the North Pole dimension, you won't be able to have him meet um, Rudolph, you know, which would be a, a cool meeting because they got something in common. So basically, <coughs> is, is that stretching your creative faculties to work around that? To an extent, I would say yes, Um being the person that wrote it, I had to do a lot of research for this, and especially when it came to Josh's visual presentation. Um, for instance, we learned that they can't look anything like the NGM characters, the Oz characters, because mm-hmm. right. um, there's a difference between a copyright and a trademark. 
I don't want to bore your fans with this, so I won't go on about it too much. But um, copyrights can fade, and then stuff will fall into the public domain. For instance, like the books, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz is copyrighted, but their copyright has passed now, so they've gone into the public domain. Whereas the characters, as they appear in the movie, The Wizard of Oz are trademarked. And even with the Frankenstein monster, um, the Karloff Frankenstein is trademarked, like his particular look. And it really had to do with, uh, was weird, the placement of the bolts in his neck. Mm-hmm. As to where they were, I think they couldn't be kind of right under his ears. They had to be lower down or something. Yeah, was, uh, and then we, we looked into it, and we decided to completely bypass that and just put them into the shoulders as stems, just so there was never yeah. any question, just to stay as far away from that as possible. So, and like to answer your question about Rudolph, Chris, and I, we, I did peek into this one. I didn't even tell Josh yet, but um, I believe the character of Rudolph is in the um, public domain. But there was a rock and bass. Did that. Um, Rock and Boss, that uh, that film, their portrayal of Rudolph, you couldn't right. use. Um, so they have very specific guidelines as to what would fall into that portrayal. So, you know, and it's interesting because um, almost every cartoon version of Frankenstein is the Karloff Frankenstein. <laughs> like, so somehow, you know, every, every animator gets gets around it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was shocked by that too because like you said when when we were looking at cartoony in particular Frankenstein's or the Karloff one, they've got the square head and everything. So um but it, it basically had to do with the exact placement of the bolts in the neck is apparently uh. what Universal decided to copyright. So um I'm sure like a lot of them just kind of do whatever and there's just it's like too many Frankenstein's for Universal to keep track of. But we figured with our luck, if we, you know, don't check, uh, they'll come knocking on our door. That's so very possible. I think to answer your question a little bit more in depth, Chris, it helps us to take characters we love. Um, and I, I don't want to reference Alan Moore's Swamp Thing uh, with this. Take something that people have already seen, make it your own, and then do whatever you want with it. Because outside of the holidays, nobody cares what Rudolph does. So why not right. Rudolph... Maybe he's older, maybe he's younger, maybe he's grizzled, maybe he's a pretty boy, and you can change him into whatever you want. Yeah, it's good idea. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to stretch those possibilities, and it, and it helps you as a creator. I know it's helped Matt as a writer. It, mm-hmm. It's helped me as an artist to explore things. Uh, I, I looked at a lot of um, Victorian-era steam-powered engines and things like that for the Tin Man, just because we thought, why not? Why not see if we can't make him something a little different because we don't know necessarily where we'd want him 10 years after Dorothy's gone or whatever the time period was. Let's play with this idea for a couple of days. And that that really helped the both of us to visualize a world. Oh, go on. Sorry, Rob. Go on. I'm sorry. You you just put the picture in my head of like a grizzled old Rudolph. Like, I'm too old for this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's, it's, you know, that that's the interesting thing, because I know um, w- with the hopefully upcoming Christmas sequel that you guys, you know, you know if, if there wasn't any iteration of Rudolph, you know, the kids would ask, where's Rudolph? Because, you know, they hope they hope to see Rudolph. And I, I'm, I know you guys would have a way around that. I, if I'm correct, didn't Rudolph debut during the 1930s in a song or the song rather? Yes. Yes. It was originally written as a um, as a, a like a book that became a song, actually. So the copyright on the book has kind of fallen into the public domain. Um, but like I said, different versions of Rudolph, in particular the one that, that was a CBS shows every year, mm-hmm. um, yeah, is, is um, held on to. But we we're certainly want to play with that and a lot of other Christmas archetypes yeah, as there's, well. There's so. a huge world out there that people just don't know about. I was actually doing a, a reading of The Nutcracker, and there's Santa Claus in that is the Christ child who flies around and gives people Christmas gifts. 
right. had never heard of that before. It's very interesting. And then we got concepts like the Krampus that's just yes. beginning yeah, to, to, to be well-known, just beginning to be, become, would the word be mainstream in terms of knowledge and everything, with the comic books and the recent movie. Because how many people know that there were versions of Santa that would conscript demonic beings and force them to do good. That's another interesting idea. Yeah, and that's one thing we might play with a lot in the book, because we feel like Frankenstein could fit well into that, uh, but again, in a kid-friendly way. So, right. um, we're probably looking at next Christmas at this point, right? I don't see us getting this done before. Uh, we had, yeah, we had talked about the Halloween, somewhere between Halloween and, and Christmas of uh, 2017, yeah. So that's that's the, the track for uh, for that, which is funny because I, I do so many novels a year that I didn't realize how much more goes into a kid's book mm-hmm. uh, than into a novel because a lot of the artwork takes yeah. so much time for us to go over. Well, I could I, I could imagine that, and like I said, I could see when I think of all these uh I think of because Christmas is my favorite season of the year, maybe rivaled only by Halloween. So I, I, I would love to see what you guys would um, come up with for this. And uh, and in terms of, uh, I mean, like a lot of the other iconic ideas for Christmas, like uh, I believe the English version is Father Christmas. Am I correct right, there? Yeah. Right. And then there is the uh, the the I think it's the Dutch, which is Sinterklaas. Am I close? Or is it Dutch? Or is that? Um, Danish, or I'm, I'm close. I think that is one of them. Uh, there's there's a bunch of versions. I like I said we have some rough notes on this, and I think it's um, in Italy. Maybe I'll, I could be wrong about that. It's not like one person is more like a bunch of the elves do the delivering type of thing. So um, uh, looks like you're right about Cinderclaus. That um, we're going to incorporate all these different aspects somehow. We have a rough outline, but we haven't really had the opportunity to sit down and kind of hammer it out yet. So, um, because like I know Josh, like I have a lot going on with um, the other work I'm doing too. Um, which would be happy. We can go over that right. stuff too if you guys want to. Yes, Absolutely. I would definitely because I'm now in the process of reading one of your latest, uh, Matt, and I can honestly say. Oh, hold on one second, guys. Daddy. Yeah, babe, can you go down and stay with mommy, please? Sorry, it was one of the, the, the aforementioned three year old. That's a cameo appearance. (laughs) Believe me. Josh is going to take care of it for me. (laughs) So, uh, being a dad, you know, it's a full-time job. Yeah, no worries. (laughs) I'm sorry, Chris. Go ahead. What what were you saying? Not a problem. Well, what I was saying was I'm I'm reading one of your latest in the kaiju genre, and I can honestly say it totally rocks. Which one's that? Oh, Robbie didn't catch it. Oh, rocks. Oh, rock. Sorry. I'm listening to my kid yell still. Rock. Do you like Operation Rock? Good. Yes. It's, it, I, I, I mean, I, an homage to Rodan was definitely needed. And, and not only that, but showing your, your knowledge and appreciation for, for cryptozoological lore. And then, you know, imagining what if we increase the already horrifying scale of these creatures and why don't we send mythological rocks with a technological overhaul and connect them to people? And once again, we have, you know, human heroes, but this time using cyborg rocks rather than giant robots to attempt to stop a kaiju apocalypse. And it's pretty amazing. And I'm thinking um, what I would like to ask you, Matt, what made you such a big fan of Rodan? What is it about flying kaiju that you find so interesting? Um, just ever since I was a kid, I've been a big fan of uh, 
wrote in. And one of the things that really drew me to doing Operation um, Rock, and, and just, I don't know, Robert, and if you guys have checked that out yet, and I, have, I have not. I have not yet. Oh, it's okay. I'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> um, Operation Rock stands for Retaliation on Cryptids. Is what it is. Mm-hmm. And um, Chris, to answer your question, um, I've always been a big Rodan fan because of there's a second book I did was Operation Rock, and I really wanted to think about how I could do different kaiju fight scenes. So by having a flying monster, it added on that whole third dimension of because the kaiju could fly so it's not just moving forwards and backwards or side to side it can move up and down as well so it really added a lot of dimensions about what i could do with um the battle scenes in that and um like you said the basic premise of rock is that um terrorists have captured the world's cryptids um so like bigfoot nessie jersey devil um mothman i think i ended up using like 20 some cryptids in that story and uh and large on the kaiju size. So then they use the rocks, which is also a nod to mythology, um, you know, like the rock from like the Harry Housen movie and from mythology yep. in general, um, to fight back, but they have cybernetic enhancements and they have to sync with a pilot. And uh, it was another aspect of where I tried to bring um, my teaching into um, the book just because I know it well. So, you know, people read some of the technical stuff like, oh, you seem to know what you're talking about there. It's like, well, I would hope so. It's my job. But, um, the thing with Operation Rock is, um, the rocks are under the pilots who sync with the rocks, similar to Pacific Rim, are under the impression that it's being a good pilot will help them to better connect with their bird because they can fly. But in truth, it's um, their ability to build interpersonal relationships that make the difference. So, um, and what I kind of very loosely tied into this was brain-based learning and uh, brain-based learning functions on like any muscle that you work out, it becomes stronger. But for these people to sync better with their rock, they had to increase their ability to engage in interpersonal relationships with each other. So that's kind of their journey as well. It's not just fighting the monsters, but they have to learn to relate to each other. And these are all people who are like top gun type, top of their um, profession people. So they're like geniuses where they're not used to interacting with other people. So they have to learn how to do that. They have the right stuff, basically, as they used to say. Yes. And and the, the, there were other there were other things you explored in there too. I thought that was interesting, Matt. Like with the flying monsters, the rocks. Not only did you explore like attacks from you know above, then all these different angles. You also explored the idea of speed. I mean, how fast? Because that's one thing about Rodan. He was he didn't just fly like Mothra does. He was ultra fast. Yeah, I think when I looked it up, I. Uh... <laughs> The 90s version of Verna in particular could fly like Mach 5 or something like that. So I thought that'd be really neat. Plus, it really gave me a worldwide scope for the novel um, in that I didn't just have to stay kind of in one area because these things could move so quickly. I could have it take place throughout the entire world. And then the rocks could, you know, fly there. I did have them station themselves in different quadrants at one point. Too, so it wasn't like they're flying across the entire planet. But they could get to cover a large area quickly in that novel. Well, I, I, I found, too, that the sinking, something that was not explored at all in the Pacific Rim, so, you know, Pacific uh, Rim, so I don't want any fans to think this is a rehash of that, because your book certainly wasn't, but um, with the sinking with the rocks, which were still avians, giant birds, the question was asked, especially with your character Green, where does the bird end and, and the human start, and et cetera, et cetera? Yes, which is one thing I really wanted to explore is that um, I've always been a big fan of the Marvel hero, the Marvel comic hero where they're flawed. So I tried to give flaws to all of these pilots. And um, 
in the case of um, the green character, she uh, was severely injured and uh, lost her ability not only to fly, but walking becomes painful for her. So then what would it be like to connect with this creature that can fly at unbelievable speeds and altitudes and stuff, and what would that do to her psychologically? And um, it's not like in Pacific River where they have somebody else they sync with, it's just them. So it's this person's kind of internal, um, I wouldn't say struggle, but journey about how this changes them to be able to, to connect with a monster. Well, the, um, Kaiju Aiga has always seemed to have had that psychic element to it, and this is like, well, this is like technologically induced psychic connection, but it's still very interesting. And, yes. uh, you know, and that's, you know, the same thing with Green, because what I, I sympathized with her, I have to say the most, because she dealt with a lot of personal issues by the freedom she had of basically becoming that rock when she would sync up. Yeah, and that's that's what I was trying to do with that is to not not just have the monsters fighting, but have this journey for Green and um, the journey for the Crow character, the the um, Captain Tobias Crow, where he's you know very much alone or needs to connect, and then um, the two young people who are um, in uh, Bixby and Monroe, um, named after Caroline Monroe, by the way. I just want to throw that out there because yeah, I oh. fell in love with her, right? Like watching all those little monster movies. So <laughs> I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, the, the, the names, yeah, the, the names were all homages, like um, um, David Bixby. Uh, do we do we even have to tell the viewers who that's an homage? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was clearly um, from yeah. The Old Incredible Hulk with uh, Bill yeah. Bixby, and then you know, he was called yeah, David, David Banner in that. And. Um, very nice. So, yeah, a lot of I like to try to sneak those homages in there. There's a lot in my Chimera book um, that came across. But um, I do have some interesting uh, news to throw out there for you guys, too, because I had uh, texted Robert that we have uh, I have some big reveals. I know Josh has to go, though. Let me just, Josh, is there anything you want to say before you got to go? I just want to let you guys know that you can find me at Twitter at uh, Broken Rocket Art. And then my blog is brokenrocketart.blogspot.com. And Chris, please contact me uh, when you get a chance. I got some wonderful Christmas stuff that I think you'll love. And uh, thank you guys. To it. Thanks, Josh. Thanks for being with us. All right. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Um, so, okay. Um, uh, Chris met me out at G Fest this year, which we had a blast. I got to meet Chris face to face. It was really cool. And. Um, we met like a lot of other neat authors and artists out there, right, Chris? We did that whole roundtable thing with um, all the different authors as well. Very awesome. Yes. So um, as Chris knows, I think I, I mentioned we were working on this last time I was on your show that I do a lot of writing for G-Fan Magazine. Right. And um, we, I started a series utilizing um, their character, G-Fantis, and we brought in the characters from other authors like Jeremy Robinson's Nemesis. Um, Tim Price is big in Japan characters. And uh, then my characters are all making appearances in G-Fan. The Rocks, Chimera, Atomic Rex is going to be in there. But um, all the authors got together. We're releasing the books um, in the next few weeks, I think, as um, downloadable e-books. And all of the proceeds are going to go to uh, the charity G-Fans Helping G-Fans. So it'll be um, people who are fans of the magazine that are falling on hard times, the, the Books will go to help them out, and it'll be called the G Fantas Versus series. Um, but the announcements I wanted to make was um, all the other authors there were really great people and really cool. So um, several of them came up to me and said, Hey, Matt, we want to do a crossover with some of your characters you're interested in, so we have worked that out. So um, I can tell you guys 
that um, my Atomic Rex character, um, Chris, you've read Atomic Rex, right? Yes, one of my all-time kaiju faves. Well, um, first, I'm currently working on the Atomic Rex sequel. I'm about 50,000 words into it, and it's going to be Atomic Rex Wrath of the Polar Yeti, where we'll see um, Atomic Rex take on uh, one of the Yetis from my novel Polar Yeti. So, and I was able to leave in there um, an explanation first how the Yeti gets to the size of Atomic Rex, because I know that's like a big thing in a lot of uh, Facebook trends right now about how Kong is going to be big enough to face Godzilla, so don't worry, that's covered. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, Chris Martinez is a friend of mine who does a really neat comic uh, called Dorogon the Fire Beast. And um, did you, you met Chris, right? You met Chris Martinez? I believe I met everyone in our, in our um, yeah. body there. Well, Chris's concept is really neat in that he does Dorogon as if it was a... Um, a 1950s B-movie that somebody found and kind of re-released, but he does it in a comic book form. So while the story is very serious and the people in the story react seriously to the event, you can actually see things like the wires holding up the backgrounds of the monsters and stuff like that, um, which I thought was like a really cool concept. So um, Chris and I were talking, and he said, hey, do you want to do something with like Atomic Rex and Doragon? And I said, yeah, it'd be fun to do like if we were to do Atomic Rex as a suit, you know, um, oh, sort of like yeah. those old 1950s suits. Um, and it'll still be like a neat story where it goes, you know, you see Atomic Rex taking on Dorgon, but it'll be kind of these little funny nods in the background of like the wires holding up the tails or like Dorgon does like a Hulk Hogan leg drop type thing. Um, because sometimes I feel like people take Kaiju too seriously and I don't want people to think I'm like a Frank Miller where I'm always like really dark. So, um, right. Uh, that seemed like a fun project to do. Um, I also was approached by um, Frank Parr and Wayne Smith, who do a graphic novel of a giant kaiju called Arrakis. Um, a very Godzilla-ish type monster, um, but with a lot of mythological undertones to it as well. So uh, we are going to do a full-on gra- uh, graphic novel in a much more serious tone of Atomic Rex meeting up with that character as well. Um, but it would be really fun, and working with Josh opened my eyes to it a little bit, uh, about what I can add on to my stories with that visual component that I don't always have in my novels. So those seem like fun things to do as well. Well, that is all extremely awesome, and the fact that we heard all this here first is a major honor. You heard it here first, people, and yeah. we are now getting on the verge of wrapping, but I, I do have a, a, a final question for you, Matt, very much in in um, in theme for this uh, podcast. Is, uh, do you have any plans in the future to maybe do several novels working within a shared kaiju universe? Yes, yeah. In fact, um, one of the things that uh, that's come up is um, uh, Atomic Rex is still being looked at for a movie. In fact, I was told uh, Universal is looking at it for like maybe two hundred million dollar budget. So um, that would be neat. Uh, but if, if that comes to fruition, uh, my publishing company, Severed Press, is really pushing for more Atomic Rex stuff. Uh, so I'm doing the sequel thought about what I wanted to do next, and my uh, rough plan is going to be to do the sequel to my first novel, Chimera, Scourge of the Gods, and then maybe look at tying that in with Atomic Rex as more of a shared universe, um, because uh, Chimera deals with attacks coming from alternate dimensions, so that's where it could be become interesting 
to do that from. And I'm also building... Um, we originally called it the Watchtower Universe, my friend John Opal and I, um, and we did our first novel, the Kaiju and the Crime Fighter, which I know we talked about before, like fake Batman versus fake Godzilla for you right. guys. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so that came out until we, we didn't realize that um, the um, Jehovah's Witnesses used Watchtower Publications for their name too. Right, so right. Um, they they were very nice and contacted us about it and said, you know, yeah. "Can you guys can you guys change the titles?" We we're like, uh, "Yeah, we can do that." <laughs> so um, that we're doing. So we're, we're changing the title to I think Clock Tower Universe instead of Watchtower. Okay. Um, and uh, I, have, I have actually had several people come up to me thinking that they were um, Jehovah's Witnesses publications, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm sorry to disappoint you guys." <laughs> um, but I don't know, maybe I'll start selling door to door. I don't know. We'll see what door, happens. Go door to door. Have you heard of Key Fantas? So I'm glad you're a atom- which which your atomic carnosaur who's becoming quite iconic. I can't wait to see which building till Rex next. Yes. <laughs> um so yeah, the uh, Kaiju and the Crime Fighter is out too, and uh, I just did a story um, in that same universe for um, a series called Superhero Tales. It's um, all about superheroes that are girls, and all the proceeds go to help out girls who've been abused, actually. Oh, so, nice. um, you know, anytime I can have my characters help out people in the real world, it, it means a lot to me. And uh, the Gorgonite character from that story appears in there, so we get like a lot of her back story in there and continuing to build to what will be like destroy all monsters meets avengers and we should get the next book out for that in the next few weeks what few months rather hopefully and this will nice. take place in the in the um clock tower universe yes, clock tower not watch yeah. <laughs> oh, i got that right yeah thank you That's so yeah rock clock tower universe i keep trying to make puns with the rex variation but they're all falling flat no they're okay uh... just okay though <laughs> So, so we are just about out of time, but I want to make sure, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to uh, get out there to plug? I, I think that's pretty much it. I'll just plug uh, my website at www.matthewdenyon.com. All of my books are available on Amazon. There'll be uh, Chimera Scourge of the Gods, Operation Rock, Atomic Rex, Polar Yeti, the Kaiju and the Crime Fighter, the kid's book, Frankenstein's Monster Goes to Oz, and um, hopefully soon the Atomic Rex sequel. You can also find most of my books on severedpress.com. All right. Matt, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, please let Josh know again it was a pleasure having him on as well. Uh, we hope to have both of you back on you know, in the future. Yeah, anytime, guys. I love um, talking to you guys. I'm always following Robert on Facebook. Um, you put so much cool stuff out there for me to check out, so thanks for that, Robert. <laughs> yeah. um, and, Chris, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and we keep doing the uh, Tales of Shadow and stuff, right? So mm-hmm. keep in touch with that. Um, but thank you guys so much for having me on again, and I would love to come on again in the future. Just let me know, please. Yeah, absolutely. Great. All right, so we'll be right back. Oh, go ahead, Chris. I said looking forward to it already. All right, guys. Thanks again. Thank you very much. And we'll be right back after this commercial.
Okay, I guess uh, that's about all the time we've got. Uh, <laughs> we we got to disconnect it all for a second, so I'm a little. But um, so I, I I think we're at our end. Um, so uh, join us next week. Uh, next week's gonna be really awesome. We're gonna have a returning guest MH Norris and guest co-host Nicole Petit, uh, two of our most popular uh, previous guests in one show. In one show, two for the price of one. And then the week after that, we're going to have uh, guest Nicole Petit with guest co-host M.H. Norris. So it's going to be a two-week event. So please join us for that. Uh, before we end, I want to thank our sponsor, the Double Meat Palace. And a special thanks to Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music, Leaf on the Stream. Thanks to all who listen. Remember to subscribe to and rate our show on iTunes. And as always, everything happens somewhere. Good night. <laughs>